Hi, I'm Brendan Schuchart, and welcome to the Novus Homo, a semi-weekly series of conversations with the artists, activists, thinkers, and leaders who are redefining queerness in the post-equality era. This week on the Novus, I'm very pleased to bring you a conversation with the legendary San Francisco drag and performance artist, Vivianne Forevermore. I asked Vivi to join me on the program because she's producing the seventh installment of Work More, an annual celebration of queer history and drag lineage. Vivi and I have a great talk about her new show, Queer History, the impact of RuPaul's Drag Race on the art of drag, and, to the surprise of absolutely no one, our shared nostalgia for mid-2000 San Francisco. So without further ado, here is Vivienne Forevermore. This call is now being recorded. There we go. <laughs> Hello. Um, I'm actually really excited to have you on. I've, uh, I've been wanting to for a long time. Um, yeah. Actually, you've, you've been name-dropped a couple times already. I think Nathan and somebody else. Somebody else definitely named-dropped you. Brontes, I think. Oh, um, cute. Yeah. And so, yeah, I'm super excited to have you on. Not not just because you're <laughs> and my friends have said uh, <laughs> people talk about you behind your back, but because um, you're one of my oldest friends, and you're yeah, I know, also it's so like, weird. <laughs> um you're one of my oldest friends, and you, you're an artist that I really um, respect and admire. And oh, thanks, man. Yeah, for real. I mean it. Actually, um, whether or not this is of any interest to the kids at home, you and I have known each other since we were just out of high school. Since you were just out of high school. How old are you? I'm 36. Girl, I'm 35. Oh, well, then, I don't know. Well, it was a few years after, because I started dating Joel when I was 22. So okay. it was four years after high school. Not to be like a numbers guy, but not. No, right. no. Let's 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 nitpick. Let's nitpick. Okay. Um, let's get the history right. Yeah, we were of drinking age, but I like the distance between thirty-five and what twenty-two is. Oh, that gulf. <laughs> really unfortunate. How far away? How far away? We each other a long ass time. You really helped shape my appreciation for drag. Oh okay, wow! No that. way. Do we need to do, like, an introduction of some sort? Huh? Oh, well, do we need okay. to... everybody. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, like... Hi, everybody, this is my friend, Micah Sigourney. And Hello. he's also uh, the drag queen, Vivienne Forevermore. The drag and, queen, um, yeah. we know each other from San Francisco, from way back. Yeah, um, there it is. Um, and you are doing a show called Work More, the seventh yep. iteration of that show. And we will, we yes. will get to that. But first, I want, yes, to, I, want to I want to tromp around in the personal stuff first. Because... You were the first person to give me appreciation for transformation because you okay. were the first person who I knew before they were a drag queen and then yeah. after they started doing drag. I remember seeing you perform for the first time. I think it was Tranny Shack. Could be. Could be a, or a Charlie Horse. <laughs> Actually, you're right. I think it was Charlie Horse. It was Charlie Horse, which is a, uh, it's, that's defunct now for a long time, yeah? Yeah, um, that's when Club Something moved to Fridays was when Charlie Horse stopped being on Fridays. I, you know, I knew you only as Micah, this, like, kind of emo, punk, queer boy. Then, all of a sudden, you were Vivi, and you were this stunning, <laughs> semi, like, like very dry, very droll, mm-hmm. like, with a, like, with a 1940s beauty about you. Oh, that means I was a handsome woman. <laughs> A masculine Broad-shouldered, broad-shouldered, darling. Broad-shouldered, broad that's right. But you know, you, like you have, you you had this way of standing, like like your shoulders were hangers and your dress was just draping on. Like you, I was so 
blown away and impressed. Oh, thanks. And I had some friends in San Diego that were drag queens, but I don't think I ever had a lot of appreciation for drag until I moved to right. San Francisco. Right. San Francisco, I think, really brings that out in people, like the appreciation for drag, and also <laughs> the desire to perform with drag queens or as drag I mean, whenever I meet younger kids, they either want to do drag or do porn, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes both. Sometimes both. Sometimes both. I've been all over the world, and I've seen drag in just about every city that I've ever been to. And San Francisco stands out a lot. It still does. It is. mm -hmm. Like, the the drag scene in San Francisco feels synonymous with, like, a performing arts culture. In fact, drag and dance and performance are, are all really mashed together in San Francisco in this interesting way. I would agree. I would agree. There's a lot of, like, the Venn diagram is pretty pretty overlapping. And then also, what the way you said, like, how it is, it's like a performing arts scene. Like, there are so many performers in drag in San Francisco. It's not five or six. It's, like, hundreds, maybe? Yeah. You know, there's, like, you can go to a show every day of the week, and there's different people performing, different scenes. Like, there's people I've never met who do drag. Whereas in a smaller mm. city, that doesn't exactly happen. Um, right. Or so even some big cities. Like, yeah. I would argue that in an L.A., I mean, I would wager, I wouldn't argue, but I'd wager that in Los Angeles, all the working drag queens know each other, if only by right. reputation. You right, know? right. And, like, in San Francisco... Uh, but working amazing. drag queen is different from drag queen, am I right? You know, like, like I know sure. all the working drag queens. Like, I know all the, well, the work. <laughs> okay, not working. Let's, let's not say working drag queens, but let's say regularly performing drag queens. You know, okay. like, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's funny. It's like, I, you know, now I've been doing drag for, what, like, almost eight years. And so that makes me really old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, I don't know what that is in drag years, but it's, it's pretty, I mean, that's a career. Oh, my God, that's, drag old, years. that's like a uh, full drag career for some, and, and not for others, but for some. And, like, there's kids coming up now who, like, I don't know, you know, like, I, I always, like, wax poetic about the days when you and I first moved to San Francisco, like, around the mm-hmm. same time, and, like, just, like, when Ambrosia Salad was here, and, like, drag, I don't know if it was our youth or my youth, it felt so romantic and beautiful and community, you know, and as I right. get older, I see that happening to the younger kids a little bit more, so I wonder if that's a newness thing, I really love that moment in time of, like, knowing people who are doing so many things, you know, and people still are, but, like, I, I also love being new to drag, and, like, and I'm still excited by it, but, like, being very, like, bright-eyed about it was really fascinating, um, and that's fun for me. First of all, you have struck on the secret theme of the Novosomo, which is a nostalgia for mid-2000 San Francisco. <laughs> that's, basically, <laughs> that's basically a subtopic in every in every conversation. You know, I think a couple things. I think that it uh, you're not imagining things. It was a really romantic time. There was a lot of you know, like, I think, I think when we were, like, coming up in San Francisco, like, we really made drag central to our culture. Yeah. And we celebrated it. And I think that there was, I think that gay culture is, tends to be, like, a series of little revolutions against your elders. Yeah, Like, a sure. scene, a scene, like, is dead and moribund and a bunch of new faggots move to town or, like, come of age and they start new and exciting things. Yeah. And then they themselves become the power structure and get a little tired or move on and do other things. Then another group of kids shakes it up. Agreed. And Agreed, for sure. Which is a bummer, right? Because now I'm eight years in. <laughs> And I'm like, yeah, sorry. Yikes. You're part of the you're part of the establishment. Did you ever think? Yeah, that would something happen? to rebel against. <laughs> I remember when I started being like, fuck this Chinese act. Not in like a weird like I Jesus Christ, I hope that doesn't get back to anyone, but like not in a <laughs> shitty way. Not in a shitty way, but more of like a I don't want to do it the way you guys are saying it has mm-hmm. to be done. Not 
just sure. like out of this like rebellious spirit. And not that anyone was saying anything had to be done a certain way. I was just more like, I'm going to do what I want, which is great. A great attitude and generative for, for making, right? Now I am club something, and so here we are. <laughs> And the kids that come up are great. But what you just said really strikes me with all of the, like, exodus of people from San Francisco, as well as the increased, I mean, this is all people in San Francisco talk about, but the increased rent prices, is that that influx of kids used to happen every fucking year. And it's not happening like that. It's not happening like that. And it's, like, all of, like, the weird queens, there's not a ton of them. There's very few. And they're not based in the city. They're mostly in Oakland. There's a lot of stuff happening there. When I come back to the city, which is frequently, yeah, I can see how the it, like it used to be full of babies always. There was always really yeah. young kids. It's just not true anymore. There's still a new influx, yeah, of hello? Kids, but they're all in their late to and early thirties, and they're mostly like attached to tech. One of the things that um, stands out to me about the scene in San Francisco mm-hmm. when we were younger, I mean, there was so much talent, just period. Yeah. Specifically, you and mm-hmm. Spaz and Ambrosia mm-hmm. and Monofat mm-hmm. all felt like such rock stars mm-hmm. so early on. Like you, like you all had a very specific vision and yeah. um, and four different visions. But you, like yeah. the four of you, you like are still you guys are my favorite. Um, oh man, that's so cute. I love that. I'll, I'll be way more insulting later in this conversation, I promise. <laughs> that. It's, I'm, I don't say that just to, like, um, inflate your ego. No, I no. say that because I wonder, like, you were all really intent on shaking things up, and you all had a very, like, you all had your own visions of drag. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't live there anymore. But um, I don't see a lot of queens with that kind of uniqueness of point of view. I see Grace, a younger school coming up beneath us. Yeah. But, and I'm not there to see things, but I do, like, try and take in shows and stuff when I'm there. And I don't see a lot of new energy like the four of you guys. There's uh, there's some queens who are performing at Charlie's on Tuesday nights who are younger and new and very fresh with drag who are, like, putting stuff together themselves. They actually have their first club night tonight, which I think is called Ho is Life. <laughs> <laughs> and they're young and they're vibrant and they're really irreverent and they're kind of messy. Like, not messy like messy drag, but like like messy, like loud and, and abrasive and fun, like super fun. Uh-huh. Um, like, I think about the, the change of San Francisco a lot and how money has to do with it. And I think one of the reasons, for example, me, Monastat, Ambrosia, and um, Faz were able to maybe even just appear that way, whether or not we were that way, is that the accessibility of venues, do you know what I mean? Like, it was very easy to just be like, I want to throw a party here. That's all it took. Like, the first party I ever threw was before I did drag, and I'd never thrown a party before, and I just knew Yasa, who was the manager of the transfer. And I was like, can I throw a party on this one day? And he was like, sure. And that was it. And it was like, there was no, like, (laughs) can you guarantee this many people? Like, and that's because there was more of a that different venues were just willing to try shit out, you know. Right. So, so I think that I think that combined with it too, like like the accessibility to like our own to speaking on our own platforms as opposed to be on somebody else's platform, you know. God, what a boring way to talk about that. Jesus Christ, what is wrong? No, uh, hey, like uh, it's economics. People were willing to take a chance because we moved there at the nadir of an economic downturn. People were excited, you know, like they. <laughs> Like, you know, they needed something new. Yeah, it's true. Use the word nader. It's one of my favorites. It's a good one. I want to talk about work more. 
I would love this to talk your... about work more. I've been I've been preparing for this conversation by watching Ooh. videos of you on YouTube. Ooh. <laughs> and I'm so sorry. No. What no, a waste of time. <laughs> um, first of all, let me tell you, one of my favorite YouTube videos of all time is you and Elijah Minnelli doing Can't Get No Satisfaction. Oh my god, right? And love like, that video. The cover, like it's a it's a cover of Bjork and PJ Harvey by Bjork yes. and PJ Harvey from the British Music Awards or something. And, I don't even know, yeah. And that video, like that performance, was just so sexy. And you guys, you, you know, you guys were in the zone, and that was the zone that you two were able to find a lot together. You and Elijah were always like a really good team. Um, right. Yeah, we worked a lot together. We made a lot of good stuff together. When you can't tell the drag queen, like when you are able to suspend your disbelief and see the drag queen as singing, that is when, like, that is the sign of a home run to me in drag. <laughs> if I can use a sports metaphor, and um, <laughs> awful. God, I love that video. I actually show it to people all the time, and they're awesome. Really? Like, really? You're showing me this drag video? And I'm like, no, yeah, no, it's also like not a great video. Like, it's no, it's a like, terrible video. <laughs> the video quality is kind of terrible. But I love, um, I actually love this video too for the reasons that you've mentioned. And like, you know, I, as an artist, I have all those self-deprecating feelings and thoughts all the time. Like, is my best work behind me or something, even though I'm only 36? And like, I look at that video and I'm like, that was like a moment in my life that was so important. I don't know how I did that performance that way. Like, the conditions that brought me to that moment no longer exist in my life. Being really new at drag, wanting to try something that I hadn't seen before and attempting it and, and having so much respect and, and like newness and, and curiosity, you know, like I still have curiosity, but it's a different type, of course, it's tempered by experience. So, yeah, that was a very special thing for me. Why did you decide to do work more? How does work more fit so, into this? Like a few years after I started doing drag, I'd say about six years ago. So I was introduced to the contemporary performance and, the, and like experimental dance scene through a common friend of ours, a colleague, Jesse Sewitt. Oh, I know. I know him Yes, exactly. And I started hanging out with a bunch of kids in that scene, which, which is and was very separate from drag. There's a few people who cross over and a few moments that really cross over, like most notably would be like Clonique. Of the younger, younger folks, there's not really much. And so I started hanging out with them and going to like, like house shows that they were doing a dance and shit like this. And they were just like kind of putting things together by themselves. Just like, I'm going to do this thing. So I was inspired by that DIY nature. As you said, I come from like a punk background. And so um, my friend or colleague or whatever, Keith Hennessy was throwing a festival. And I was like, hey, I have an idea for a program. Can I do it? And he said, sure. And the program was this thing called Work More. And it started as I just was like really curious about what are the... Wait, things. was it at... Was it... At that the, theater space that um, yeah, Mama Ernesto's Voice Factory. Yep. Mama Kaliza's um, Voice Factory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That the, kid, the kids at home are real excited about this defunct uh, studio. Yeah, this old um, theater space that no longer existed. Um, but yeah, so he said I could run a program, and I was really curious. I, he, I was really curious about tradition and history, and like what is the tradition and history of drag that we don't see all the time in San Francisco. So the first one was just, like, I was, like, invited some people to do stuff that was based on glamour, high glamour, lip sync, and extreme femininity. Um, because I love experimentation, and so, like, this was kind of me, like, pushing against my own desire for experiment, right? Like, I was, like, I want to see glamour and lip sync, and I want to see femininity. Because we fuck with that a lot in San Francisco, which is one of the best things about it. So I was just curious uh -huh. to drive back towards that and see what happened. 
so that was the that was the first one, and it, it happened pretty early in my drag career. Like I just had this idea for this thing, and I put it together, and then Keith Hennessy did that festival the next year, and I produced it again the next year. Um, and then as my performance art career kind of started happening, I started applying for money and getting grants. I started applying for money for work more. And the mission changed a little bit to not just being like a commissioning platform, but a way of like dispersing money to drag artists who wouldn't normally access grant funding. You once described drag to me as a folk art. It is. Yes, it is. Would you like, would you um, fill that argument out a little bit for me? Because it is something that I think about all the time. And, um, no. sorry, just go ahead. <laughs> First of all, I kind of like really just like absolute ideas of it being like true or right. But I think it's a pretty good argument and an interesting proposition that drag could be folk art. And to me, a folk art, and this is like a folk art off the top of my head, not looking it up, but giving you the correct word for it. A folk right. art is something that's a traditional art that's passed on from mentor to mentee usually. That's not necessarily written down or codified in that way, but it's more about these idiosyncrasies, codes, and like shared knowledges. Often oral histories are involved. So that's what I consider to be like a folk art. Historically, folk arts are outside of the canon of what art is. So like a, like a, like a high, a fine art or an art that you would, a curator would put a lot of value on or a museum would collect. So you have like traditional and folk arts and then you have fine art. And to me, for drag to be a folk art, it's located within the queer culture and, um, the structure of drag houses as they exist now. Mm -hmm. is like kind of mimetic of like more heteronormative cultures, like there's a mother, the knowledge is passed down in this familial line, right? And so it's like mm -hmm. this way in which queer culture is passed on through stories or sharing of techniques or sharing of information or gossip or whatever. Uh, so to me, it's really based in this social activity of being together, and then it's an art that comes out of that or comes out of that and then also feeds into that. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes total sense. Work more is, is a lot about tradition and like a, a lineage of drag. Yep. I was I was... One, I was wondering if you'd be interested in talking about your drag lineage. Sure. And the House of Moore and how that has shaped you. And then two, as our folk art becomes popularized in a broader culture, like through drag race, yes. how you see, you know, the straight gaze of the American Empire on drag, like how that is changing it. Oh, God, there's so many t troubling and dangerous comparisons. Well, first, like my drag lineage, so cool, actually. I feel very hashtag blessed, gross. <laughs> you know, I grew up on Long Island, and when I was 18, and I was, like, one of those kids who always wore, like, a purple T-shirt and too many necklaces, and, like, everyone knew I was gay, and I was like, no, men can look like this, too, you know, and I was, like, obviously one of the sucker tickets. And the first nightclub I went to was called Squeezebox, which was in New York City, and I got in when I was 18 because my best friend was good friends with their lighting guy or whatever. So I was going to this nightclub from 18 on, and I moved to New York after high school. And there was this amazing DJ there named Miss Guy, who was this, like, beautiful, androgynous, dragish type of person. And the show was hosted by Sherry Vines or Jackie B or uh, oh. Mrs. Yeah, or Mrs. Formica. And so, like, those were, like, when I grew up doing, going out in nightlife, those were the drag queens I saw. And then when I eventually, years later, through a longer-than-necessary story, met Glamamore and started doing drag, and mm -hmm. not just Glamour, saw Juanita Moore, met Glamour, and then became friends with both of them. Glamour mm -hmm. is tied to Miss Guy, the DJ from that party. They used to do the boy bar together in New York. Yeah. And, like, they're friends. And so, like, this, like, 
very, like, happenstance, like, this is the night, the first nightclub I went to, and it's the one that I always reference as, like, my genesis of, like, nightlife, like, what I believe nightlife should be, which was, like, really mixed and punk rock, but everyone was there, and it didn't matter, and you just had fun, and you were there to dance, and there was a show, and the show was good. But so, like, this was the club that, like, shaped me, and then I got out here, and I was like, oh, so the person, the guy who's the DJ there, comes from knowing Glamour, like, was influenced by Glamour, or friends with, or in her network. And then later, I'm in this network. And, like, to me, there's this, like, queer serendipity or this... Like, I always had this idea that, like, one of the amazing things about queer nightlife, I think maybe more than state nightlife, but I don't know, because I don't go to those parties, is that you can know someone very little and very briefly, and it can have a major impact on your life. It doesn't have to be long-term, and it doesn't have to be, um, like, significant in time compared to other things. And that's how the queer nightlife has influenced me. And so then to have this confluence of things come together was, like, really powerful to me, which maybe made me curious about lineage then anyway Lama Moore is my drag mother her mm-hmm. daughter is Juanita Moore which makes me Juanita Moore's sister which is totally ridiculous Lama Moore has been doing drag for 30 years question mark and lived in San Francisco for I don't know how long right now uh-huh. in my brain she is also known as Mr. David and sews clothes for so many queens but has been forever and then Juanita Moore is a force who appears to believe in above all beauty glamour and celebration and like one of the things she's most powerful at is bringing people together in ways that are creative um, and t- towards a higher purpose, be it like towards supporting her pride party or towards going to an event together or whatever it is. And so she's also been a powerful influence. So my lineage like ties to Glamour more and then like her people above her. And it's interesting because like if you start like going back, like these structures of houses are not, given like the history of the human race, are I feel like are newer than they are old, right? Like the court system started in like the 60s and so... Yeah, that's another system. So, like, I wonder how, how far back these houses go when people can be open. But then there's the, but houses are just a more formal structure of chosen family, you know. Right. Which is what queer, and like, queers I, make family as opposed to inherit family. Totally. You know me. I'm, 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 I have an almost religious belief in the magic <laughs> and power of, like, queer family. And well, like, we have to. I mean, we don't have to. There's plenty of people that don't. People who don't have queer family or who haven't, like, right. been able to find it. So much of your drag house is a part of my queer family. Yeah. And, like, you, you are. We are so lucky to have this big and sprawling queer yeah. family. And, totally. You know, it feels the, like having cousins everywhere, you know? Like, yeah, I know that yes, I like, came to L.A. and I was like, hey, Brendan, and we hadn't talked to him. I was like, I really need a place to stay. I know you would be like, here, let me help. You know, like, it's that, girl, it's that cousin. That like, right, totally. It's that kind of, like, real distrust and that there's people out there who were tied together in some way that's not blood. That's powerful. Yeah. And, like, I don't know, that's beautiful to me. And the things that you, the things you learned from from David and Juanita, I think I, I learned very similar things. I learned um, David always let me know that he saw me. Yeah. And that he expected things from me. That's like, so delightful. <laughs> and, um, and Juanita, our generation of queerness was very punk and very fairy and very yeah, you know, yeah. loose. And Juanita really, like, helped instill a love of dignity and glamour, like, helped, like locked into a little piece of my, my soul. Yeah, they were both incredibly impactful on me. We're so fucking lucky. <laughs> right? <laughs> well, and what's amazing is, like, I just, whenever I see someone talking about, like, some drag queen from somewhere, I, like, try to dig further and read about it on Facebook or whatever. And I would, I came across like a Vice article about this queen in, in Canada who's like named in the Guinness Book of World Records as the oldest performing queen or whatever. 
And just reading about, like, it's like they hang out with her and go to a club, right? And it's, it's nothing special. It sounds like hanging out with them more and going to a club. Or, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. and, and to just know that there are these pockets of networks everywhere, not everywhere, in many places that are very important to the people involved in them, that's so beautiful to me. And, like, this kind of ties to your second question a little bit of, like, what happens when RuPaul's Drag Race happens mm-hmm. and then... Oh, good. I'd forgotten. Well done. Right? Like, the commodification, right? And it, I think yeah. it's very easy. It's very easy for me to forget that these pockets still exist and are still super important and, like, mean something to the people directly involved in them. But then you do have this bigger outward-looking thing that's tied to the nefarious capitalism. <laughs> mm, <laughs> wow. Right? Like, and how to get a dollar. So there's there's ways in which I feel like drag as an art form, like capital D, drag, capital A, capital F, capital drag, drag as an art form, is in a way suffering from from what you could say if you wanted to is like an exploitative model, which is a reality TV game show, right? Like, mm-hmm. like you could say that. And, and sure, there's like reality TV show game shows that are like about cooking and no one's saying that like America they're ruining cooking right yeah no one's ruining cooking but that's because cooking isn't a queer cultural expression or traditional art form it's something that cooking is a traditional art form I don't want to get in trouble but you know what I mean like no one there's ways in which this is like this has been something that has traditionally only been appreciated by queers only lived within a queer vernacular and now it's in a pop cultural vernacular which is awesome and shows the progression of the rights for queers. And also, I think RuPaul's Drag Race has significantly lent itself toward visibility of trans people, even though that's not the mission or the goal. It's just maybe a side effect, maybe a perfect storm. But there's ways in which there's this queens who are birthed on RuPaul's Drag Race. Like, they right. become drag queens because of that. Not because they have a connection to someone. I've never heard of it. Like, they didn't go to a Glamour show and say, I have to try that, too. They watched right. TV. They saw yeah. Jinx Monsoon on TV and decided right. that's what I want to be. Right, exactly. And if and you see Jinx Monsoon in person, you'll probably decide that because she's fabulous. But there's a way in which it's not tied to bodies in space and time anymore. And that's because of the media expression. And that's, well, that to me is troubling. I have a lot of love for Drag Race, but it is not an uncomplicated love. Almost anything you can say about Drag Race, I think you can argue it in both directions. What you were just saying about like, it being untethered from a person, it being, it, you know, it is, it is concerning to me that it is untethered from that oral tradition that is so important right. to drag. But at the right. same time, it is exposing drag to some little gay boy who thinks that he's the only boy in the world who wants to put on a dress and sing pretty. And, exactly. Yep. And that's amazing. It <laughs> you know, crazy. Like, it's really cool. Um, I don't know if you know RuPaul or uh, uh, how much insight you might have into this, but she doesn't seem to like or celebrate San Francisco's Wool of Drag. That's not weird. Super weird because, like, I mean, I don't just say this because I'm biased, though I am, but San Francisco has some of the coolest drag in America. Like, the interesting, most boundary-pushing, like, I know lots of really talented queens who uh, who have applied for Drag Race multiple times. And I know, like, each time, it took each show for its own reason. There's, like, San Francisco just seems so underrepresented, in special comparison <laughs> to places like Puerto Rico, who yeah. often have multiple queens <laughs> in yeah. a season, season after season. That's just, like, it's... I'm curious about that. 
but actually, that wasn't my point. What I, what I wanted to say was I have pushed friends of ours to go out for Drag Race. You know, there's a way to look at it where it is tying drag into this exploitive capitalist system. But the queens who go through it, you know, have can command a lot more financially um, mm-hmm. um, within within that within that system. Um, right. Their reach is expanded. There's a boost in influence that comes with just being on that show. Right. I guess that's all like the the seductive poisoned apples of capitalism. Uh, 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 uh. Well, it is. And the thing is, I was talking to a friend of mine. She's a queer lady who lives in L.A. She's so speaking with a woman, radical lesbian who lives in L.A., who is adjacent to TV in some way. Let's just put it that way. And she was really urging me to apply to Drag Race. Mm-hmm. And I was very resistant because of, like, capitalism seems icky. And, like, and reality TV is gross. And um, I don't love what's happening to drag. And then she was like, yeah, but TV is really important right now. Like, television itself as a medium is truly important, which I agree. And she was like, it can open doors to you that you don't even know exist. And here I am. Right not just a drag queen, but also, like, a weird performance artist, experimental dancer, like, doing sure. my work in Europe. And I'm like, what would happen to that career? She's like, maybe nothing, maybe something. It probably wouldn't hurt you. Like, you would get paid a lot of coin for a year. And this is someone who I really respect their political opinion. She was like, you can, if you auditioned and got on, you could make money. And that, for something that you already do. And I was like, oh, that's true. Like, it's something that I already do all the time. It's not different for me. But anyway, that that conversation happened. I don't know how I feel about it. I've always been uh, way more Glinda than Elphaba, and I'm a strong believer that you can't change the conversation if you're not participating in the conversation. Right, right. If you don't like what Drag Race is doing to drag, and I don't always, but I'm not a drag queen, but if I was, I would have to ask myself, what can I do to change that? And, like, there isn't really anything to do to change that except for either go on the show and be like, try and be a counterpoint to what you don't like, or do your own thing of the same level, which you're way more likely to be able to do if you've been on the show in the first place. Exactly. Been such a sellout, sorry. (laughs) I don't know if sellout is even a good term for the way the world is anymore. You know, like, a queer person getting paid for the hard work they've been doing for years and never been recognized by the mainstream because it's not valuable to pay people. Like, that sounds nice. I mean, the fact that it's exploitative and then also limiting, like, that's too bad. And that's maybe just the way it's going to go for us for a while. But if we also look at, like, the history of reality TV, we start with, like, Survivor and and what? Like, and, like, like there's just so much reality TV now. I'm wondering what's going to happen with drag queen reality TV. I wonder if it's going to become so ridiculous. We've already hit 100 queens. 100 queens. I can name not 100 of them. I can't like, name 100 of them either, but I would, I would look back on all those seasons. And everybody who made it into the top three of just about all of those seasons is inc- an incredibly talented performer. And I'm really Agreed. excited that, like, they have been, ex- like, the world has got to take them, you know, has been exposed For to, like, sure. like Sharon Eagle to Jinx Monsoon to, like, Bob the fucking, Bob the Drag Queen. Oh, my God. Right, yeah. Um, right, and just making stars out of people where they weren't, they didn't have an avenue to become stars before. I mean, look how long it took your father to be a star. To be a star that she yeah. is now. She's always been a star. I mean, let's be real. She's always been a star. But... For real. For real. <laughs> um, should I tell you more explicitly about Work More, this iteration of it? Yeah, yes, really done that. please. So this is called Work More 7, Daughters of a Riot. The work was commissioned by the Queer Cultural Center, so the, the concept was developed in collaboration with them. It is the 50th anniversary of the Compton's Cafeteria Riot. 
Will you? Yes. Some 13-year-old happens to be listening to this. Will you explain? Brendan, they could be 35. I have met so many people who don't know about I was being generous. (laughs) In August of 1966, there was a diner in the Tenderloin called Jean Compton's Cafeteria, also known as Compton's Cafeteria. And it was on Turk and Taylor, which is across, it was across street from what is now and Charlie's Lounge. It was a 24-hour diner, and it was a place where drag queens, transgender people, hustlers, drug addicts, weirdos, freaks would congregate because it was 24 hours, and you could sit there with a cup of coffee forever. And it was also a meeting point, so you would know that your, that your friends hadn't overdosed in the night or had been arrested. It was a place, it was like a town hall where you just figure shit out and come together. And like many gay establishments, cops were harassing patients. In Compton's, it was a little different. Compton's was not a gay establishment. So sometimes the staff at Compton's would call the police on the patients because they'd been sitting there for too long or they were too high or what have you. One night, allegedly, the staff called the police and the police came in and they, as legend goes, they put their hands on a drag queen just threw her cup of coffee and a police officer's face, which then created a riot and people just threw everything that they had Paddy wagons were called. And this was in 1966, which was two years before Stonewall, which was kind of the galvanization of the gay pride movement. And also, interestingly, I think it was a year or two prior in L.A., there was another riot at a donut shop, which was a very similar situation to Compton Cafeteria. So, yeah, it was, it, was a time, it was also a time in America where there were riots happening a lot, civil liberties and stuff. Um, what's significant to me about Compton's is that it was in the Tenderloin, it was quote-unquote street people, and it was hustlers, and it was drug addicts. It wasn't respectable, quote-unquote, square, respectable gays who were starting a riot and organizing. It was people who had it and just, like, exploded, and that, that is a big part of the gay liberation movement. How does that tie into this? Well, what are you taking I'm, from that and putting into Work More 7? Great question. So Work More, I kind of said to the Dennis earlier, now Work More is evolved into a process where Every project is collaborative in some way, and collaborations in new configurations in new ways. So I'm working with three other queens, and we researched for about three months um, just, like, the queer histories of San Francisco. And Compton sticks out because it's the 50-year anniversary. But we were researching generally what are the hidden queer histories of San Francisco because a lot of queer histories aren't documented very accurately. And we started finding a lot of shit that was tied to gender expression, right? Like, we all know the queer history or the gay history of AIDS, like, AIDS, AIDS, AIDS. You know, I, can, we, I, can, I can recite to you about AIDS, even though I've never read it. Um, <laughs> like, well, you know, like AIDS is like the big thing, but we don't talk about how the laws that were formed in 1863 to regulate the bodies of cross-dressers, Chinese immigrants, and sex workers are the same laws that were used to regulate drag queens in 1966. There's like a history of oppression that's really tied together, and then there's a history of resistance that happens in these explosive moments. So Compton's is a good example of that. So we look at, uh, like, the White Knight riots, which was about resistance to the murder of um, Harvey Milk and how it ensued with riots and stuff like this. And one of the things we've been interested in that I don't know if it's actually made its way as as a full idea into the final show is how a lot of queer resistance involves or revolves around gender variance. And that, like, for example, Compton's cafeteria was a bunch of trans people yeah. and drag queens. And that it's taken this long for transgender people within the queer community and then the larger nation of the United States at large to get rights. And what I mean, we're still fighting for bathrooms. You know, like, that's crazy, because without that, we wouldn't have had marriage equality. I am always a little taken aback by people who, both trans folk and gays and lesbians, who want to, like, separate the T from the LGB. Yeah. Because we're so, like, intrinsically linked to, like, all of our, our struggles 
like just as you said, like these things always come to a head around gender expression and right. the the guy who beats you up for like being queer, like doesn't care if you self identify as a drag queen or as a trans person. Like right. he just wants to beat the shit out of you for being different. I mean the social justice person in like advocate or whatever wannabe in me would even say like not just like the the tie togetherness of trans folks and other queer identities but like queer folks and other identities who are suffering similar oppressions right so for example vanguard was a, a, like a group of street queens is how they how history refers to them a group of street kids who formed uh, in that summer of 1966 and actually protested outside of Compton. and vanguard found their home according to the readings we've done at Glide Memorial Church, and their mentor was a civil rights activist, a black man. So, like, there's ways in which these moments of resistance, it's forgotten the, like, the actual intersectionality of them. And if you think about common yeah. cafeteria, we're, we're talking the tenderloin, we're talking trans folks, we're talking drag queens, we're talking drug addicts and hustlers. We're not talking a majority of white people either. So to right. think that they're not linked in that way, too, is like, it's always, it, it tends to be the people on the edges that create the rupture that allow to more rights to the people in the middle. And for the people, in the, the people in the middle, often, or at least in this example, don't turn around and look at the people on the edges and say, like, come with us. You know what I mean? That was a bummer. <laughs> I don't know if that's actually <laughs> true. I don't know if that's true. I haven't researched that. That's just my impression. You know, um, I, um, like, I think we can say anecdotally, like, neither one of us has researched this, but mar- what is marriage equality? Mar- marriage equality is an invitation to assembly. Right. And so many queers, so many gays, and lesbians are choosing just a, like a, like assimilation with just a touch of gay bar, and right. Um, right. they have washed their hands of their browner and you know they're they're more radical, they're more queer brothers and sisters and others. You know, they yeah. Like I really feel like a, a large swath of especially young gays have just yeah. kind of turned their backs on the rest of the queer community. Yes, I agree. It's a bummer, right? <laughs> like, what do we do with that information then? And it's also, like, so, like, I kind of almost want to circle around. This isn't a very like, neat way of putting it together, but then, like, let's talk about, very briefly, because we shouldn't have to do this RuPaul's Drag Race. Like, here's a TV show that's celebrating drag, which used to be, drag used to, like, live within resistance. Drag is resistance. It still is. And to think that just because we have RuPaul's Drag Race, people are safe is ridiculous. But now people are, they're famous and they're accepted in some ways. And, and that's nice. And I'm hoping that this is just like a symptom of a larger shifting in which more things become acceptable or okay. But there's ways in which it's come out of, like DragCon. Go to a conference about drag and like, let's forget that drag queens come from rioters. And then let's get annoyed if our pathway to DragCon is blocked because there's like a Black Lives Matter protest. Not that there was, but like, you know what I mean? Like that's an obvious thing that could happen. I wish there, my desire would be that there more intersectionality around these things and just acknowledgements um, by like white queers and powerful queers and male queers and cis male queers, you know? Anyway, that's kind of like work more. This one, the way it's going to look is it's a big, huge stage show. There's Nine nightlife performers on stage. There's a video made by Aaron Cantor, Dirty Glitter, uh, that I wrote. I wrote. It's all collaboratively made with all of the queens, and it touches on specifically. We touch on Compton. We touch on AIDS. We touch on marriage equality. We touch on uh, Harvey Milk. We touch on the Barbary Coast. So we're kind of just trying to do like queer history lesson in a way that's interesting and not annoying. That's all. The show um, sounds really great. I think I'm mm-hmm. still going to be in the south when it goes off and I can't be there but no, no worries. worries it could be there is um, 
um, there's a question that I'd like to close with. And, yes. Um, it, it goes thusly. I, I just want to ask you if, if there are any, like, young queens listening to this who um, want to make drag their art, what advice do you have for them? Oh, girls, live your dream hard. Live your like, – like, don't believe that your dream is the only dream or the right dream, but, like, dream something and then just do it. Like, that's the, that's been the most attractive thing about drag to me is, like, you can just choose to do it and go do it. Don't let someone tell you you're doing it wrong. Um, or do let them, but, like, do it wrong. Go ahead, do just it wrong. Punch in the face. Yeah, so punch me in the face with a lip sync, you know, like, <laughs> but just, like, live the dream has been, like, the thing that's been the motto at Club Something for a while, and it really rings true with me. Like, in my darkest hours, it's like, live the dream. What's the dream? Live it. What's stopping you? It doesn't matter. Live it. Those are, that's the quality in drag queens that I admire the most. And that's what you were talking about earlier, I think, with Elijah Minnelli. We were just in it. We were flowing. And yeah, living. totally, totally, totally. Vizzy, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Uh, I lo- thank you so much for I love this conversation. You. Oh, so much. You are so such a dear heart. Oh, I'm going to be um, in L.A. <laughs> when? I'm going to be in L.A. on June... Hold on, let me get my calendar. June 4th for the Queer Biennial opening party. I'm doing a performance installation at the gallery there, and then I'm going to be giving a talk at the Ace Hotel. Oh, awesome. Um, send me info for that, and I'll include it in the link page for this thing. Awesome. I will do that. All right. Baby, I love okay. you. Thank you again. And we'll um, yes. talk to you soon. <laughs> Bye. Well, there you have it. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Vivi slash Micah as much as I did. Work More 7, Daughters of a Riot, premieres this week, Friday, May the 27th, and Saturday, May the 28th, at the Brava Theater in San Francisco. And it will include performances from some of my very favorite burlesque dancers, drag queens, and performance artists including Bobby Barnaby, Dolce de Leche, Honey Mahogany, Kitty Von Quim, Landra Time, Lal McPherson, Fatima Rude, Trixie Carr, Vivienne Forevermore, and the always astonishing Queen. It's going to be a fantastic show, and if you're in the Bay Area, I strongly urge you to check it out. You can find links for Daughters of a Riot, Vivi's podcast called Calm Down Queen, and any YouTube videos that strike my fancy on the info page. That's it for this week on The Novus. Until next time, keep it queer, homos.